Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I am your host, Laura Hersher. Uh, here today to talk one in actually a series of shows about race and genetics. Today's podcast is brought to you by Invitae. When the question is genetics, the answer is Invitae. Race is a social construct, but race is a social construct that overlaps to some extent with ancestral background. And therein lies a great deal of trouble. Um, Very well understood, very well known that genetics has a race problem. The concept of genetic inferiority using genetics to prove the inferiority of one race to another has been, you know, sitting with us for hundreds of years. A hundred years ago, Charles Davenport from right down the road at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratories talked about immigration making America darker in pigment, smaller in stature, more mercurial, more given to crimes of larceny, kidnapping, assault, murder, rape, and sex immorality. Terrible stuff that unfortunately is not gone from today's dialogue. So race is not only a a mediocre proxy for genetics, it is an actually bad proxy for genetics, bad scientifically and bad morally. Morally, because we have this long, long history of using a pseudoscientific view of race to support racism in its absolute worst manifestations. And that isn't That isn't purely historical phenomenon. Something's happening around the world today. And the conflation of race and genetics is not just imprecise and incorrect, but dangerous. Scientifically, it's bad because when we use race as a proxy for genes, we are prone to swing and miss, if you're wrong, and because race is a real social construct with real health consequences related to the social determinants of health. And conflating them means we erase this important health data very often. So theoretically, we have these two data sets, both important to our understanding of health outcomes, uh, shared ancestry as it influences genetic variation, haplotypes, and shared culture and history. The problem that I think we have is society refers to both of these things loosely as race and ethnicity. Um, So for clinicians, being told race is a social construct sort of puts us in a bind because many of our patients understand their own biological heritage in terms of race. And others are distrustful of medicine and research for very good reasons. And in fact, while we may prefer to think of their concerns as historically based, like, you know, oh, it's Tuskegee, which is true, but also that's not true. Racism is embedded in medicine and genetics today. Uh, Just think about our current tests How good are those tests? It really depends on who you are. They're better for some people than for others. So there are a lot of people out there in this field that want to do better and who want the tools to do better. And I was delighted to see a recent paper in Genetics and Medicine by Kyle Brothers, Robin Bennett, and Mildred Cho that takes a very hands-on approach to how to make genetic practice and research not only not racist, but anti-racist. Um, they had suggested some specific and concrete steps that we can take to unconfound race and biological ancestry. Um, How do we change our language? How do we change our practice? The moment I read this, I knew I wanted to discuss this on the Beagle. So I'm so grateful that two of the three authors of this article are joining me today to talk about some of their proposals. Kyle Brothers is an associate professor of pediatrics and the endowed chair for pediatric clinical and translational research at the University of Louisville. Kyle, that's a mouthful. 
Dr. Brothers is a pediatrician and bioethicist, and his research is on ethical issues in the translation of genomic technologies to clinical practice. And Mildred Cho is the professor in the Division of Medical Genetics at the Department of Pediatrics and in the Division of Primary Care and Population Health at Stanford University. She's also associate director of the Stanford Center for Biomedical Ethics and director of the Center for Integration of Research on Genetics and Ethics. And welcome to you both. Thank you for coming here today. Thank you for having us. Yeah. So I was really sort of framing the paper in my own way, but let me, let me let you do it, since you're the authors. What were your goals here with this article? Well, um, we, had, we were actually inspired by um, uh, other publications that have come out recently, in particular um, a post in the Health Affairs blog uh, with lead author Rhea Boyd, um, looking at, um, you know, the evidence of, of racism in the scientific enterprise in general. And uh, as we looked at that recent work, we recognized that, as you really nicely pointed out, genetics has its own kind of, uh, you know, ball of worms to deal with around race, uh, specifically because the, the history of genetics is so uh, you know, been deeply um, involved in in racist practices um, like eugenics, um, but also because in the modern understanding of race, it, it it is very difficult even for experts in this area to really discriminate between the idea of race, as you said, a, a sociological, sociopolitical uh, idea, and genetic ancestry, which um, does not uh, exactly correlate with race and has very different kinds of implications for science and for health. And so uh, we really wanted to take this, um, you know, this work that's been focused more generally in science and really uh, focus in on the pieces that are kind of uh, specific to genetics or where genetics might require, uh, you know, special kinds of solutions uh, to solve the problem of racism. So you laid out eight principles, and one thing I think is interesting is throughout you have an emphasis on not losing the data of race as a determinant of health. Do I understand that correctly? Yes, that's, that's correct. I think um, what you said uh, earlier really points to the need for um, kind of not throwing the baby out with the bathwater and that race being, uh, recognizing race as a social construct or a social political category, um, that is very important to health and acknowledging all the ways that we already know from the literature that race is a critical component of health outcomes and health disparities, uh, means that we can't just throw it away if what we're really interested in is understanding the causes of disease and, and how treatments work or don't work. Um, we have to retain it. We just have to disassociate it from the biological um, where it's appropriate. So it's really um, getting at more of a, what we were trying to get at with our principles was um, treating race in a more nuanced way and also treating race in a way that we treat all data 
Um, so I think that part of what we were trying to get at is um, the use of race in genetic research, but also the reporting of it, because I think we as a biomedical research community have not done the best job at really holding ourselves to the same standards for reporting race and how we ascertain it. Um, and so we use a lot of very loose language. We don't really, we're not precise about our terminology. We don't say, you know, how did we get this data? And these are, and, and so this sort of added rigor of reporting and ascertainment, I think would just bring us more in line with what we, uh, the standards that we use uh, for ourselves um, in publishing uh, and conducting research for all biomedical research. And, and I just want to point out that um, Kyle and Robin Bennett and I, um, as the co-authors here, are all um, on the editorial board of Genetics in Medicine and that we were also inspired by the editor-in-chief um, to try to come up with principles that we are going to implement as policy um, to try to get take a leadership role um, on these issues um, kind of with on-the-ground um, guidance. Mm -hmm. So what I liked about this article is it is actual brass tacks as opposed to, you know, yes, you make some general statements, but you also say, like, this is how we can do that. And do you want to talk about that a little bit? How do we avoid, um, how, how do we talk about race without making it sound like we are talking about race as a biological category? Yeah, that's great. We, we actually think there's a lot more work to be done uh, on that in particular. I, I think that's uh, quite thorny, but I, we did suggest a few things that we hope will be helpful. Um, one is that, um, you know, it's very standard practice. Actually, the federal government re uh, requires the use of uh, black or African-American as a category um, that's, you know, uh, meant to correlate with race. Uh, however, the term African-American in the genetics context Im implies ancestry. And, um, you know, to be sure, there's admixture, um, th that the idea of ancestry is not, um, you know, singular. Um, we, we all have ancestry that comes from more than one, one ancestor, obviously. So um, we, we really are suggesting using the terms white and black to, in the U.S. context mm -hmm. um, to refer to those two categories. So that's, that's one very specific um, suggestion that we made. An another suggestion that we made is that um, the use of continental level terms for race is also problematic, not just for confusing race and ancestry, but also because continents are quite large, and um, in both the category uh, of ancestry and also the category of race, there is a great deal of discrepancy within uh, continents in terms of health outcomes, experiences of, um, 
you know, systemic racism in, you know, the world uh, and interacting with government, all of those types of, of forces that influence health. And so um, we are suggested the uh, approach uh, of being a little bit more specific than, um, than continent and preferably something along the lines of, you know, if a, if a person is able to identify um, with a particular country of origin, that that might be uh, more useful, and it would it would allow us to identify health disparities that subgroups are experiencing, and not sort of lose that really important detail by treating sort of you know all folks for, who have ancestry from Asia or who identify with um, you know the racial group of Asia. Uh, you know, we would just miss out on those details if we stay at that level. Well, I mean. I, I have said this before and probably said this before on this show, but if there's any single fact that shows the absurdity of race, um, if you're, if you're thinking of it as a, as a useful biological predictor, it's that we have five different types of Europeans. And then we call the, how many billions of people from Asia? It's just all Asians. Right. And then in this country, we refer to them as a minority. Like, well, <laughs> something's really mixed up there, right? You know, at least they're an underrepresented majority, right? At least we could would say that. Um, so one, one piece of advice along with use black and white and not African-American. Wait, do I use African-American if I'm talking about Barack Obama? You know, if it's um, literally African-American because you're saying something about genes? Uh, Actually, I think you, for race, you need to ask Barack Obama how he would identify. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, he's been asked that a lot of times, so we know the answer to that. Um, yes, right. And, 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 and sort of blanket, just no one should ever say Caucasian, basically, ever, unless you're referring to that region. Yes, Mildred. I think so. Well, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think what, uh, part of... Um, the theme that you picked up on in, in the paper is that we're really trying to get to, to encourage people to, um, for precision, right. And, um, acknowledging also the ways in which the, we have been using race as a proxy for all kinds of other things, even if it's not biological, but, as a proxy for socioeconomic status, as a proxy for all kinds of other things, but it, that you know that's really from a research perspective um, not that helpful because, as Kyle said, it loses so much of the information that it really should be capturing. So, um, you yeah, know, for example, this, the, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, oh well. So, for example, the. Um, you know, when you talked about um, Barack Obama and African-American, you know, or even black, the term black, that doesn't make any distinction between um, someone who's, uh, you know, a visiting, a visitor from Nigeria or an immig a recent immigrant or somebody who actually has slaves as ancestors whose family came over, you know, hundreds of years ago Um and doesn't acknowledge all the different kinds of um, social, economic, and other um, other sort of variables that kind of go along with immigration status. 
for example. So, you know, they're very, very, um, you know, in, if thinking about it from a research rigor perspective, um, those are really kind of, uh, in some ways, just, um, it, it's lazy to use those kinds of terms to try to capture lots of other things. And it's also dangerous in the sense that it could be misleading in that um, using these broad terms um, that may be inappropriate or not capturing the, the variables we think we're capturing um, could really miss a lot of things. So, for example, with the COVID epidemic, using this term Asian really doesn't didn't capture the differences and very huge differences between, you know, different sort of um, nationalities or immigration status within that uh, broad umbrella term. So, Mildred, you, I mean, uh, Kyle just mentioned that NIH has rules where it asks you to track participation of uh, various groups in research and in, other, and in other ways, and it mandates specific racial ethnic categories, right, um, so, that, so that there's continuity between data, so that it, it can put these data together from, from multiple sources. And I actually went and looked at the NIH information, and it, it uses, it says white, and white is defined as Europe, Middle East, North Africa, right? Like it's, mm-hmm. it, the NIH data actually literally defines each of these categories, which are racial categories, by genetic ancestry. Is, is that something that needs to change? Is that a problem? Well, I think the use of these federally mandated categories, which have been sort of in place for a few decades now, um, really is something that needs to be um, revisited um, for many reasons, but for, for that reason, um, partly because I, d- I think, you know, it doesn't really... Uh, that level of detail is also not applicable to the other categories. And then the use of the separate ethnicity um, uh, categorization as Hispanic or non-Hispanic also obscures lots of relevant um, social and biological differences between individuals. So I think the, the use of that those categories is um, something that we really need to uh, kind of start at the drawing board and look at over again. Yeah, it seems kind of problematic. Uh, when you say it obscures it, I often uh, think to myself, I use the word gene washing, where it's though when you have a broad range of genetic and non-genetic factors that influence a health outcome, but you start to talk about the genes, it like washes everything else away. It, it, it's, it's as though that's the real one and everything else is sort of not real information. Mm-hmm. Um, is that what you mean when you say it loses the... Yeah, I think so. I mean, and as you, as you mentioned, I think um, with examples like Barack Obama or Tiger Woods, you know, I think... Um, it also sort of clouds the picture in terms of um, ancestry where people have um, 
you know, mixed ancestries and there's admixture at the genetic level and it just becomes really impossible to kind of make any sort of conclusions from, from data when you have these categories that don't capture that at all. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was looking at Baidil um, at the time when it was the first, which was the first and to my knowledge, the only drug ever approved only for a specific group population for, for it was approved for black Americans, although it obviously could be used for everyone for a blood pressure drug. And I was like curious to see what it was based on. And I went back to the original literature on the studies where it, it had been shown to be more successful in this group. And I was like, well, how did they establish who was, I think they used the term African-American. So how did they establish who was African-American? They're like, well, they asked them like, okay, that's, that's fine. And then one of them, they said, well, they asked them. The other one, they didn't explain it at all. They didn't give any information. There was no information on how it was ascertained. And in the explanation for the one that did, they said that um, they didn't look at any differences related to that, like, for instance, stress, which seemed to me like a worthwhile thing to look at if you're talking about blood pressure. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, but... Completely agree. <laughs> one yeah. One of the big problems with that um, approach, I mean, that, that story itself is a perfect example of the danger of forgetting about the difference between uh, race and ancestry and sort of the non-biological basis of race. Because when you approve a drug for a racial group based on, you know, race, uh, there, that implies that there is a biological correlate to race. And that's actually, you know, affirmatively not true. It's been well demonstrated that that's not true. And, um, you know, you're, you're just reinforcing these messages that make people think that there are, you know, fundamental genetic differences between folks who, who self-identify from different races. Um, and that's really one of the challenges we're trying to uh, fight against in this paper is um, really uh, encouraging folks in genetics and genomics to, um, when their hypothesis has to do with um, genetic variants driving health outcomes, look at those genetic variants and the outcomes. Um, when uh, but that's actually quite rare, I think. In most cases, outcomes are going to be determined by both genetic variation and also by uh, social, economic, and political factors. And so it's really important to use both kinds of variables in studies, looking at gene-by-environment uh, effects in order to really understand um, if there is a correlation uh, of an outcome or risk for a disease with a particular population group, we need to understand what's driving that. And mm -hmm. in most cases, it's going to be a social political kind of effect and, and the genetic variation, since there are not huge genetic differences between groups, th those are, that's not going to be the main driver of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. So I kind of run roughshod over your principles. Let me go through the principle. Principle one was use race only as a socio-political category. Um, two, I may be summarizing, don't use race as a surrogate for genetic ancestry and don't use genetic ancestry as a surrogate for race. Um, 
So in terms of genetic ancestry, I'm curious, would you advise people to only talk about genetic ancestry based on knowing something about their genes, like as genetic information, or that genetic ancestry you're saying is another thing that can be self-reported, but self-reported by literal country of origin of your ancestors and be more specific? No, I'd, I'd love to hear what Mildred thinks about this. My, uh, my personal view is uh, race categories are categories reported uh, by self-report as the only rigorous method for obtaining race information. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to look at genetic ancestry, you should look at genetic variation. Um, and there's, you know, many different reasons for doing that from a scientific perspective. Uh, admixture is the, the, probably the most clear argument for that, that individuals tend not to have uh, singular ancestry. They, they tend to have ancestry, you know, that is combined from various regions of the world. And so you really need to look at the genetic variants themselves, the ancestry informative markers in order to look at ancestry. Okay. So that's clearer. Um, principle three, which we've discussed, don't use terms like African American or European American that evoke, you describe as the old hierarchies or appear to signal genetics when that's not what you're saying. Principle four is interesting. You said use self-reported health and report on it whenever possible. So that's about not losing the social determinants of health piece. Am I understanding that right, principle four? Yes. I think we are trying to make the distinction there, again, between sort of genetic or biological categories and... Um, when race is used um, to as a marker of uh, possible factors that could be influential on health, and that could run in a number of different directions. So, for example, the thing that might be important in a study is um, how a provider perceives um, a patient to, you know, how, how providers um, perceive the race or ethnicity of their patients. Um, it could also be, um, race could also be involved in terms of, you know, sort of perceived racism by patients, mm -hmm. for example. So race can be used in a lot of different ways as a scientific variable, but we're just sort of in this principle trying to ask for a little more specificity about, you know, what is it that you're measuring that uses race and how are you measuring it? Mm -hmm. But you also said literally name racism, like the way you might say it now to media figures, stop hopping around, stop calling, you know, uh, lies, like sort of mistakes or whatever. If people are lying, call them out. If it's racist, call it racist. Don't say it. like, it seems like it might have racial connotations or all those sort of euphemisms. That was how I read that. You're saying like, don't resort to euphemisms, point out right. what's racist. One of the, um, you know, uh, we're, we're a polite culture, and we tend to use euphemisms. Well, I'm from and New York, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm from the South, and yeah. we, you know, we're try to be polite. And uh, you're not supposed to talk about religion, right? That's one of those things. Um, but we, we don't like to say racism. We prefer to say things like, 
you know, talk about poverty or talk about, um, you know, uh, educational background or things like that. And um, those, when we focus on just those kinds of things and we don't name racism, then we further push under the rug the idea that a lot of those mechanisms we're talking about are actually being driven by racism. Why is there in unequal access to educational opportunity because of systemic racism? And so what we're really trying to do is encourage scientists to be rigorous in identifying uh, the mechanisms that are driving you know, the outcomes that they're observing uh, instead of trying to be polite, you know, science is not the place to be polite. We, we need to point to the real problems. Yeah, it's a great, that's a great point. Um, I want to get through all of your ideas. So the principle six was avoid discussing the social determinants of health in reductive terms. Um, that's interesting. That goes back, right, to me. That goes back to this idea of don't lose this data about race, just don't mix it up with genes. Is that? Yeah, and um, I think for me, one of the um, you know the dynamics that I was most concerned about in genetics is, and you pointed out uh, this a little bit earlier, Laura, that um, you know we're, we're folks that work in genetics and genomics. We tend to think about cause and effect in terms of genetics, and so. Um, even if there is a genetic component to a health disparity, you know, for example, in um, uh, response to a drug, um, we tend, or there's a risk that we'll reduce that disparity to merely a genetic effect. And then we, in that way, tend to discount the contribution of environmental factors like systemic racism. So we're just encouraging folks working in genetics to think about health disparities holistically and not, you know, not bare heads in the genetics. Yeah, yeah. And this seventh, I think, is really um, interesting, and it's like a challenge to journals, where you said journals should prioritize studies that include underrepresented groups in their group data, even if these subjects have been published before, to get out, I guess, richer data sets there. Do you think that's something that isn't happening? Yeah, I think it's interesting because, you know, I was just looking at the um, mission statement of the journal Genetics and Medicine. Um, and, you know, like many scientific journals, it's, um, you know, it, it the journal sort of says what it thinks it wants to prioritize to publish. And novelty is such an important hmm. um sort of value in science and scientific publishing. And so I think this principle really kind of gets at the, um, maybe challenging us to think about how this, um, you know, really valuing novelty uh, might have been part, one of the ways in which kind of unintentionally perhaps um, uh, we, publishing has contributed to um, kind of devaluing studies that might have um, helped us get um, more diversity into our into the literature, right? Uh, diversity represented in study in research, um, because you know the first one that comes out, if it's done on European populations, then 
if another study comes out later or uh, submitted as a manuscript to a journal, and it's basically doing the same thing as that first article, but in um, a smaller or maybe lesser uh, known population or, you know, um, uh, underrepresented population, those kinds of manuscripts might not be given high priority just because the scientific question has already been asked before. Um, so this is sort of asking for us to kind of rethink that. I think it's such a great point because the truth is that's not even sort of a neutral sit back and don't ding this, this manuscript because the subject's been coming before. Because to be honest, manuscripts about European populations, American, you know, they're easier for us to get. They come to us, right? Mm -hmm. Like getting more diversity of information into our journals. I, I'm the editorial board of the Journal of Genetic Counseling, means going out and cultivating relationships with people who are working and writing in other countries. Um, it means sometimes providing them with resources to help, help make the manuscript, you know, because they're, they're writing in a language that isn't their own language. It, it, it could mean finding reviewers who are appropriate for that population, right? It's a real challenge to journals. It's, it's, uh, I think it's a great point that it's a worthwhile challenge to make a concerted effort. Yeah, and I think it extends, you know, to researchers as they're thinking about how they're going to collect their samples or structure their research questions. Um, so hopefully this will, um, as, as journals um, start to publish more of these things um, to encourage diversity um, representation in the literature, that researchers will also then um, kind of embrace that and, and seek diversity more actively. Which brings us straight to your eighth and final principle, which is so great. I never thought of it. Don't treat white as quote unquote normal. Like, don't don't set up your papers so that everybody else is the not normal and white is the normal. Right? To understand, state that correctly enough. Perfect. <laughs> I never thought of it. You're right. Of course, it is. It is the way we we set things up. You've directed a lot of this at researchers, a lot of it at journals. So I'm, I'm going I'm to ask you um, a question, which is, I, I think it's, it's difficult and it's a little bit sideways to your topic because it's about patients uh, and clinicians, which is that how do we negotiate the conversations with patients who often see their own ancestry through a lens of race. And if we tell them, I feel like sitting down with somebody who isn't in this field or who doesn't follow, you know, isn't a sociologist, isn't an anthropologist, and telling them that race is a social construct, sounds like I'm asking them to, I'm saying, you, you think you understand something about the world, but you don't. It sounds disparaging in that sense. And I think that's a position that, genetic counselors often find themselves in because we're establishing trust and bonds with our patients. We can't start by saying something that sounds disparaging. So they often end up asking about race. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I have been thinking a lot about the clinician view and, and how we as clinicians handle race and use it. And <clears throat> as you know, a big, a big part of practicing in healthcare is 
um, pattern recognition, right? And, um, you know, I, I learned, you know, the symptoms, the signs that, that constitute an ear infection, you know, and I, I learned that pattern, I can recognize it. Um, so much of that pattern recognition incorporates race. And um, our, our patients pick up on that, obviously, because we talk with them about the way that we're, um, you know, performing a workup or that our suspicion because of their race. And I think that all of that use and pattern recognition, it, it further just uh, reinforces that message that race is biological, right? Um, which is, again, the message we're trying to move away from um, b because uh, that just continues to drive racism. So I think um, one of the really important ways that we can address this in the clinical context is to rethink the way that we use patterns. And if, um, you know, if, if there's evidence from the past showing that risk for a certain kind of outcome or a certain condition is associated with race, then we need to go back and ask the question, what is the mechanism by which that effect occurs? And if we can figure out the mechanism, whether it's physiological, genetic, uh, based on factors that are driven by systemic racism, like experience of stress, like poverty, other kinds of issues, once we recognize those mechanisms, then we can be much more um, precise in the way that we care for our patients by looking at those mechanisms instead of using the really rough uh, measure of uh, perceived race, you know, is what we tend to use. So um, I'd really like for the clinical world to move forward in this area as well. Mildred, mm -hmm. do you have any, um, any last words on that? Yeah, I think that's a really great point, Kyle. I mean, I think that points to how both researchers who are also kind of doing pattern recognition, we're looking for associations um, and clinicians, um, should also think about how what we're what kind of data we're including to look for patterns in. So, for example, um, you mentioned stress and these um, kinds of more um, uh, less obviously health-related, or, you know, um, they're not the sort of variables that we measure a lot in the clinic, right, that maybe we should be asking about stress. We should be asking about these other things, just as researchers should be thinking about whether they need to collect more data on socioeconomic or social determinants of health, because you can't, you can't look, you can't find something if you're not looking for it. You can't find a pattern that include stress if you're not looking for stress and, and don't have data on stress. So I think that's just um, a, a generalizable kind of um, theme of, about looking more broadly uh, for the data that might be relevant to the patient at hand. Well, we're running out of time and that feels like a good place to stop. Um, thank you both for coming here today. I found the conversation helpful. I found the article helpful. I hope that people will go and take a look at it. And I hope that uh, all of the journals that are in the genetic space will think very hard about how to implement the suggestions you've made. Thank you. Uh, thank you to our listeners. 
go to the website, BeagleLanda.com. Follow me on Twitter, all that good stuff. And goodbye to both my guests today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Today's podcast is brought to you by Invitae. When the question is genetics, the answer is Invitae.